It's the criterion. It's the criterion. 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 In. 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 Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Criterion Project, the podcast where we talk about movies in the Criterion Channel or Criterion Collection or both, sometimes neither. Uh, you know, we make our own rules. I am Conrado, as always, and I'm here with the great Rachel Wagner. Rachel, how are you doing? Hi, everybody. I'm doing good. <laughs> and we have a very special guest this episode to talk about Martin Scorsese's adaptation of The Age of Innocence. It is returning guest, Jen Johans. Jen, how are you doing? I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. We're very excited um, to talk about this movie with you. Excellent. Yeah, we're getting, getting on our period piece hats. It's going to be super fun. We do love to put on a bonnet and a top hat and talk about some period pieces. Um, before we get into it, though, it's been a while since you've been on the show, Jen. So would you like telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. I am a film critic. I'm based in Phoenix, Arizona. I'm a three-time national award-winning writer. I write for the website filmintuition.com, which is my website, and I also freelance elsewhere. And additionally, I host the podcast Watch with Jen, and I've had Rachel on. I've been fortunate to have her on a few times for great conversations. Yeah, well, we know Rachel always gives good conversation. <laughs> yes, she does. <laughs> we just recently talked about 90s rom-coms, so that's my sweet oh, spot. Oh, yeah, your Incredible. area of expertise. Yeah. <laughs> She's the queen of rom-coms, so yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I even won. It was so exciting. We had these Suits Up Geek uh, uh, tournament of uh, the best rom-com, and I mm. won that tournament. I was very proud. What wow. did you have to do in order to win? Uh, you so to... you, so they have a draft, and you oh. get to pick five movies. And I didn't necessarily pick my favorite movies. I was really trying to be strategic uh -huh. with my choices. Uh, and, you got the crowd uh, pleasers. Yeah, crowd pleasers, and also there were a lot of men who watched that show. So I wanted to pick ones that I felt like men were more likely to vote for. Mm, so and I it did. Paid off. Yeah, yeah. The, the Ten Things I Hate About You and Pretty Woman and okay. Breakfast at Tiffany's. And now I'm forgetting the rest. <laughs> okay, sounds like a winning lineup. That's oh, for my sure. big fat Greek wedding. Uh, there you oh, go. Well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was really fun. All right. Sounds well, congratulations. Like Thank you. Yes. Um, okay, so listeners, you can you know listen to uh, Watch with Jen uh, to listen to Rachel's episode and all the other episodes. You can also listen to Jen's first appearance on the Criterion Project from a couple of years ago. We talked about. Talk of the Town, a oh, kind of yes. screwball classic. Um, but it's crazy that's been years. It does not feel that long ago. It really no, doesn't. but it's been about two years almost since that's then. Crazy. Wow. Time. Yeah, time flies, as they say. <laughs> and okay, so before we get into the movie, let's go around as usual. Talk about what we've been watching. Something in the Criterion Channel, perhaps, or maybe something a little Criterion-y. Um, Rachel, do you have something for us? Yeah, I have been very busy. I uh, attended the virtual South by Southwest Festival. And for me, most of the narratives didn't really do much for me. But the, uh, but the documentaries were what I enjoyed more at the festival. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, particularly uh, one called uh, 
the the crows are white um about okay. it's a crows are white it's about a man who is uh profiling a group of japanese monks and as mm. he does it he becomes more he sort of has a faith crisis of his own and uh, it was very moving and i hmm. really thought it was excellent um but also i've been getting ready we're doing a special episode of the Homeworkies podcast uh on adventure rom-coms next week Ooh. and so i've been oh. watching uh some fun adventure rom-coms this week to get ready for that including romancing the stone which i love so much it's so much fun mm-hmm. yes uh, and also the african queen uh which mm. is just really great mm. i think it might be on criterion channel i'm not sure it's uh it's really fun i especially love that the the whole marriage at the end like that's just so funny and sweet <laughs> and i really love the two of them and uh it's great so that's been some great fun stuff i've been watching I've actually never seen the African Queen, if you can believe. So maybe it's a great it's a great excuse. I assume you're doing this episode to coincide with the Channing Tatum Sandra Bullock movie that's coming out. Yeah, right. With the lost for the lost city, we're doing yeah. uh, African Queen, Romancing the Stone, Nim's Island, and uh, a Hallmark movie called uh, Pearl in Paradise. Uh, mm. so <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good episode. Um, mm-hmm. It'll be next next Wednesday. Well, I'm not sure when this will air, but mm-hmm. it'll be. Um, uh, you'll check it out on Hallmarkies Podcast. It's, it's going to be fun. Cool, fantastic. Um, since you mentioned South by Southwest, I'll go into my uh, what I've been watching because I have a question for you. Did you get to see the new Nicolas Cage movie that is called something like Unbearable Massive Talent or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I I didn't. It wasn't on the virtual, unfortunately. Oh, a okay. Lot of, and, also, the new link later isn't wasn't on virtual. Oh no! All right. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that kind of sounds like later. something they would do at the festival. Like, well, anyway, I brought it up because I saw the trailer for that movie before seeing the Batman, and that re- made me really think about Nicolas Cage as an actor and how his perception has been so all over the place during his career. And he and and I, you know, now he's has this movie that is very meta in which he plays himself and that seemed to me like it was going to be either very fun or one of the most cringy unbearable things ever (laughs) and that made me think he's such an interesting character so I've been watching a lot of Nicolas Cage movies recently to kind of like figure him out so I watched uh, the movie Pig from last year which I thought was pretty good and especially Mm -hmm. um, his performance was really understated you know which is obviously the, not what you expect from Nicolas Cage. And I thought that was a very interesting use of him. I also thought the movie was also meta in its own way by casting Nicolas Cage as this kind of outcast who has been removed from, in this case, is the um, the restaurant, the kind of like fine dining world. But, you know, you could make it seem like it's kind of like a, an analogy for Hollywood itself. And, you know, he's like this guy who's removed from it because he has spent so much time lately going to like making DTV movies and and his acting has been rejected by a lot of people. Um, so that was very interesting. I don't know if either of you have seen that movie. What do you think about that? Oh, Pig. About Pig? Yeah, mm-hmm. the performance was very good. Yes. I love Nicholas really Cage. I enjoyed it. He's, yeah. Oh, sorry. Oh, no. Go ahead, Jen. 
Oh, I love Nicolas Cage. He's probably the first actor, well, he's definitely the first actor I remember seeing on the big screen as a girl in Moonstruck <laughs> when I was in first grade. Oh, yeah. I went with my Italian-American mom and grandma, so it was three generations <laughs> of us. I remember being bored, of course, because I was in first grade, except mm -hmm. for when he hit the screen, those big operatic mm. scenes um just kind of captivated my attention and everyone's attention and uh the joke around my house is that's when jen developed her thing for actors basically so right yes <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah we've talked about moonstruck on this podcast before and he his performance there is so um well, i mean it's great and it's so yeah. like you're saying yeah magnetic um mm -hmm. which is um which is it makes me think of the other movie that I watched, which is The Rock by Michael Bay, which oh, um, yes. <laughs> was kind of like his first action movie, you know, after winning the Oscar for Leaving Las Vegas. And that was such a weird performance to see because, yeah. it's a, you know, he is playing kind of like this nerdy poison expert. He's not a field agent, but he's still trying to be really cool. And he's kind of like he's testing out what it would be like if Nicolas Cage was an action star and, and <laughs> I found it a very strange performance but it's it's almost more fascinating because it worked and he became a very successful action star for a long time and it's in the Criterion collection which is bananas yeah, <laughs> yeah. right that and Armageddon there was a time when Michael Bay was a collection um, staple I guess <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, with Pig, I did not think that I would like it. It just felt like one of those indie films that mm -hmm. I wasn't going to be into. And then I, so I kind of, I put it off, put it off. And then I finally watched it before, so I could do my voting for Hollywood Critics Association mm. in, I think, November. And I ended up really enjoying it. It was way better than I expected. And I don't know, I just, I thought it was actually a really sweet love story between this yeah. man and his pig. Yeah. yeah, and his pig, yeah. And very and a very sad, tragic love yeah. story at that as well. Yeah, he um, loves that, he loved that pig. And it who wouldn't? So it's a great pig. <laughs> yeah, and, and very, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, found, I found myself uh, very touched by the movie and by Cage's performance mm -hmm. in particular. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, how about you, Jen? Do you have something that you would like to share with us? That I've been watching? I have been watching a lot of kind of Criterion titles recently for research and work. I've been really enjoying my revisit of a bunch of Terrence Malick movies lately. Mm. So I first started with The New World for an episode I did on Colin Farrell with the great Vilga Ibiri, which was wonderful. And then I also watched The Thin Red Line because I was assigned uh, for DVD Netflix to write about Elias Coteus. And he's one oh. of my favorite character actors. And then I was just enjoying sort of the vibe and Malik so much. I had to go and watch Days of Heaven one day just sort of as a mental palate cleanser. And I just love his whole sensibility of nature and getting back to the simple things and it's so beautiful. I also have been watching some vendors recently and they kind of go hand in hand. Like I revisited Paris, hmm. Texas because I had uh, the filmmaker Allison Anders on and she was a PA on that film and learned a lot. So 
yeah, it's been really cool to revisit these. I also revisited some Campion, the piano, and Power of the Dog because mm-hmm. I just recorded an episode for Slate, uh, The Waves. I co-hosted with Ingu King, which should be coming out, I think, next week. Great. Um, well, yeah. like so a lot of uh, a lot of cartoony stuff going on yeah. there. So everybody <laughs> listening, um, you know where to look for all that now. Um, Terrence mm. Malick, which we've talked about in the show, also Jane Campion. We've never talked about Wim Wenders, though, Rachel. Maybe sometime we should do one of his movies. Ooh. I don't even... What does he What does he direct? Well, Paris Texas... He's a German director, but he made a number of movies in America, right, Jen? And yes. Paris Texas is one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Harry Dean Stanton uh, is oh. the lead in that movie. Very, very good movie. Very um, emotional as well. Um and he's made some others. Uh, Wings of Desire is uh, one oh, that he made yes. in Germany that is also really uh, good. Okay, I've heard of that. Yeah, yeah it was and remade a... City of Angels. And That's also, right, talking about Nicolas Cage. <laughs> yeah, tying it all back together, see what we're doing. There's another one you might really enjoy, Rachel. He makes road movies a lot, and there's one mm-hmm. on Criterion called Alice in the Cities. Have you seen that one, Conrado? Yes, I was just about to mention that because that's a personal favorite as well. Yes. It's a very sweet movie. And I do agree. I think Rachel would really enjoy that. Yes. Oh, I love that. We're in sync. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's one of those classic a guy and a, and a little girl on a road trip movies that it's um very, you know, very cute and very, uh, very good, very well made. Um, so yeah, I totally co-sign all of that. Um, that's a lot of uh, recommendations for all of you out there who are listening. Mm. So I think we are good to start talking about the movie um, that is the main event today, <laughs> The Age of Innocence, um, which came out in 1993, um, based on the novel of the same name from 1920, written by Edith Wharton. And, you know, it was directed by Martin Scorsese. He also co-wrote the screenplay with Jay Cox. It stars Daniel Day-Lewis, Michelle Pfeiffer, Winona Ryder, and then some a pretty cool cast of character actors that includes Richard E. Grant, um, uh, Geraldine Chaplin, Miriam Margulies, Jonathan Price. So a lot of like very good recognizable faces in the supporting roles. But um, would either of you want to give uh, kind of like a brief plot description of what the Age of Innocence is about? Um, Rachel, would you want to give it a, a go? Um, no. so, <laughs> if not you can pass the baton to Jen see if she wants to do it <laughs> so it's about uh, it's set in the 1800s and it's basically about this lawyer uh, who is uh, who is engaged to this woman and uh, he ends up doing some work for uh, for her cousin who is an older woman is like a baroness a uh, countess yeah countess countess olenska and he ends up falling uh for her uh mm-hmm. and so it's kind of about that that uh love triangle i guess you might say is that yeah so you have the, the lawyers played newland archer is the name of the character played by daniel day lewis and he's engaged to the winona Ryder character may um and then this Michelle Pfeiffer plays the Countess Olenska, who's coming from Poland because she was married to a Polish count, but marriage didn't really uh, work out very well for her. And so she's still married technically, but she comes back to New York. And that's, I think, the important part of this is the 
1870s in New York in high society. And it's a very, um, you know, restrictive and very, a place that is ruled very specifically. And it's a whole world of a lot of, you know, beautiful uh, kind of presentation, lavish costumes and exter- very, you know, like pretty exteriors, but like a lot of like, very judgmental, uh, dark things going on in the inside. Would you guys agree with that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a theme of the movie. And the story is kind of putting on a facade. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of the movie as a whole, Rachel? Was this your first time seeing it? Yeah, this was my first time seeing it. And uh, I I thought it was really compelling. I, I enjoyed it. And I am definitely... I was I haven't seen a lot of Scorsese, but mm-hmm. I, I'm hit and miss on the ones that I have seen, um, and so you know I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's got good characters, uh, good acting, um, you know, and I love myself a, a most period pieces I'm <laughs> a fan of. I love how in whether this is more Victorian era or you know the Regency era. I love how there was always something to say at any time, you know, that even something that someone you absolutely hated, there was like, there was something that you would ask, how is your mother's health? You know, like, I just love that about uh, that, those eras. (laughs) Interesting. I I love all of the, the, I I don't know. I love all of the formalities and rules Hmm. and, I just find that makes for really interesting stories. Yeah, it, it's interesting. That's an interesting thought in this movie because I feel like here it's almost such a strong critique of the formalities and, and all those rules, I feel like, in many ways. And we can get into it a little more later on in the episode. But um, how about you, Jen? What's your history with this movie and what do you think this time? Martin Scorsese is actually my favorite filmmaker of all time. And so I had seen it when it was new. Uh, one of the first, like, intensive pieces that I ever wrote in school uh, was in AP history. I read Mm. Edith Wharton's novel and then compared and contrasted it with this and then Scorsese's filmography and argued that even though this was him working in a different mode and a different era, he was kind of still going with the same themes of love and society and putting um, happiness aside or putting yourself um, back to do what's expected of you. Some of the themes that have kind of gone throughout his entire career. Mm -hmm. I loved the book. I mean, it's the first one uh, that earned a woman, you know, the Pulitzer Prize. And I also enjoy how it plays on Portrait of a Lady and the friendship that Edith Wharton had with Henry James. Like even the name Newland Archer comes from Isabel Archer in Mm -hmm. uh, Portrait of a Lady. I think it's gorgeous. It's, you know, it's so heartbreaking. It kills you. It makes you swoon first. I I made a joke yesterday, like first you swoon, then you cry, and then you're yelling (laughs) at Daniel (laughs) Day-Lewis, you know, as the film goes on. Um, yeah, I think it's, um, very, very well done. I will admit the first time I saw it, I was kind of underwhelmed. I thought it was a little Mm -hmm. too static, but then Mm. when I read the book and I realized, oh, that's why we see, as I think he said, uh, Scorsese on Scorsese, you see like eight distinct dinners. 
Um, and you go nice. on and on about the flowers. And he said, because these elements are essentially, you know, keeping him imprisoned. So there's a reason why, mm-hmm. you know, she includes all of that in her book. And they decided to do the same. Yeah. Yeah. I think I haven't read the book, but everything that you say makes me think that it's a great piece of adaptation um, Mm -hmm. because um, it really the, you know, the production design, the costume design, the cinematography in the movie, what what I guess what the Cahiers du Cinema would call the mise-en-scene is really, I think, very present and very important because this is a world of high society in which nothing that is almost of substance is ever said. And it's all about what painting you're hanging in your house, what costume you're wearing, yeah. what how you're what you're eating, what you're serving, you know? So it's all about these details that seem unimportant and everything that's important is not said at all. And that's really is what hits you or what hit me at least in that last section of the movie where like the Nelly Lewis character comes to realize, oh, I've have been imprisoned in a way that is much stronger than I ever knew. You know, I already felt alienated a little bit from this world. And now I understand this world has me on a grip that I just cannot get out of, Um, which was very, um, which I think is very well done. And I think the, I agree with you as well, that the first time I saw this, I was a little bit underwhelmed. Um, I saw Mm -hmm. it again and really liked it, really loved it. I thought it was a great movie. This last time watching it last night, I just thought it was a masterpiece. I completely yeah. fell into it um, from the filmmaking. You know, it's so dynamic in an unusual way. You know, the camera does move. The Everything is so luscious. And there's so many interesting cuts and dissolves and effects. Um, and everything is just... It's the energetic Scorsese, but being used in a genre that so oftentimes does not... Uh, welcome that kind of energy so I thought that also was very impressive to me this time around yeah he really wanted to branch out and work in other genres Jay Cox was a film critic for Time Magazine and they became friends in the 60s and Scorsese would joke like how annoying it was because he enjoyed his films but because of their friendship he could never review them and (laughs) so come on but in 1980 um, Jay Cox gave him a copy of the book and he didn't read it for like seven years he said he was busy and interested in other things and uh, Jay said you know you always talk about wanting to make like a western or a romance or you know he wanted to work Mm -hmm. in all genres he finally read it in 87 and realized wow like he was at that time in his life where it just all made sense to him with the marriages and things he had been through uh, Mm -hmm. with Catholicism and you know not wanting to get divorced but having fidelity issues and all of his personal stuff and so it all just kind of clicked and I guess they would do these planning sessions like uh, twice a week informally and then when they sat down to write it in 89 they wrote the whole thing in three weeks right before he shot Goodfellas which is bananas again so, wow yeah that wow yeah I like the fact that there isn't like a real moral to this one that <laughs> yeah. it's that it's just kind of this is the story and then you are allowed as the viewer to to take whatever you want out of it. You know what I mean? It's not mm-hmm. that like good heavy point. handed. Yeah. Um, which some of his other films, I felt a little, a little bit heavy handed. And I, I just like the fact that it's sort of this, 
especially the end, you know, when he's sort of, uh, when he, when he talks about his experience with May mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. May had said that she knew we were safe with you and always would be because once when she asked you to, you gave up the thing you wanted most. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, that, was really yeah. that was really good. But then he responds, she never asked, you know, which I think is a very key line for me because it, yeah. it speaks to what you're saying, Rachel. It leaves it up a little bit for interpretation. Yeah. What does he mean? Does he mean she didn't need to ask or does he mean she never asked and I'm upset about it and I, and I will always hold it against her? You know, like I always feel like that line, you know, it's such a beautiful sentiment what you read and then this complicates it a little bit. And I feel like that's what the movie is doing constantly, which is a strength. Yeah. I have a question for you guys. When do you think May knew? That's a great question. And that's something that I've been thinking about ever since the first time I saw yeah. the movie. Uh, and I go back and forth about Winona Ryder's performance around that. You know, I I, uh-huh. I like really focus on it thinking, you know, the first time around because I knew she was the only actor from the movie to get an Oscar nomination. And at some point, I think a lot of people thought she would was going to win for it. Mm-hmm. Um so I, so I always kept thinking this, but but it's such a tricky thing because her character obviously is like the most at home in the world of the movie of all of the three main characters, right? Is the one who seems yes. like a complete product of this high society and the one who knows to play by its rules most easily and most seamlessly. So she really fits in. And when she finally reveals how much she knew mm-hmm. and, and, and she almost... Again, she doesn't really reveal it. You know, she says things subtle. that, that yep. yeah, exactly. Because everything is so subtle in this world and nothing is said directly, which is so frustrating so much of the time. <laughs> well, when they're on the vacation, when they're in Florida and uh, she says uh, that she thinks that he's in love with yeah. somebody mm-hmm. else, but then he says, no, I am in love with you. Right. You got to wonder if that's where she became suspicious. Yeah, I was wondering with the flowers, you know, I sent them to your cousin yeah. Ellen, was that right? And it's mm. it's almost a little cutting because she attacks right there just subtly again, like kind of plays with his ego of, well, she let me know, you know, she got flowers from this guy or Julius Beaufort mm-hmm, and this mm-hmm. person, but she never mentioned yours. And so yeah. there's also <laughs> kind of the, the thing of, you know, when you maybe don't want to let people know that you're starting out feelings for someone or you're keeping it mm-hmm. to yourself because it's so delicious. And uh, so then it's what was the deal? Why did Ellen keep that to herself if it was innocent? Yeah, that, that is such a great thing. And that is, yeah, that's such a such a wonderful moment to think about once you've seen the whole movie and look back on it, like you were saying. Um, that also makes me think of the things that I thought make this fit so well into Scorsese's other movies. You know, people talk, the, his most famous movies are the ones that are about like gangsters and violence and uh-huh. that kind of thing. You know, Goodfellas, uh, you know, they wrote it before shooting Goodfellas, made it a little bit after. So, and this world, you know, I'm not going to be the first one to say this, but it does feel in its own way like like the mob. This like, you know, this it high society. Is. Yeah. It, it is a couple of things there one is like just like in mob movies nobody says what they actually are going to say you know in the mob usually mm-hmm. it's because you don't want to talk about crime in the open and say so it's everything is coded just like in this movie and also 
this Winona Ryder character, so sweet on the outside, so seemingly <laughs> like the, you know, the the little girl of this like high society, the princess of the ball. And then that scene at the end is absolutely devastating. And it's like brutal the way that like, it's almost like one of the most brutal things I've seen in any Scorsese movie. It's just a, it's just a yeah. wife telling her husband that she's pregnant, but it just feels like a stabbing with a knife, you know, it's so, it's so. Um, yeah. He was inspired by the movie, the heiress and mm. uh, the way that the coldness kind of happened in these beautiful, uh, serene settings. And he was very taken by that whole idea and exactly what you were saying, Conrado, like it is like the mob. There are things in it. He even uh, in an interview called Newland Archer's character, a stand-up guy who's going to do the right thing when push comes to shove, like, you know, just that is kind of mob speak. And also mm -hmm. the scene at the end, when we find out like she's leaving and it's the farewell party, they sort of pull up. And you see him surrounded by this group of people who all want to let him know that they know what has been going on in his mind mm -hmm. when it comes to her. And I mean, it's it's sort of like uh, we're bringing you in for a sit down kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And and even more fascinating, I think, it's the fact that they are letting all letting him know by yeah. acting like they don't know that yes. nothing's wrong. You know, so creepy. <laughs> so yeah so convoluted and so yeah so stressful <laughs> yeah yeah he definitely seems to be drawn to uh themes of betrayal and loyalty i think yes that's, you see that mm -hmm. in most that's of his smart. films yeah 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 totally um let's see what else to do oh so uh one of my favorite performances in this movie is a supporting role by miriam margulies who plays the grandma Mingud, who is the uh, kind of like one of the top ladies in society but also she cannot really leave her house because it seems that she has trouble walking or something and i think that character is very fun uh, i love miriam margulies in general and i think she does a really really fun job with it playing this like you know kind of like playing the maggie smith <laughs> downton abbey role of like the <laughs> yeah. old you know dowager heiress whatever but also, I wanted to put out there for people who have not seen Miriam Margulies as a guest on the Graham Norton show, she is the best guest. She's so funny. And she has a particular appearance in which she talks about being in the Age of Innocence oh, wow. and thinking that she was going to be nominated for an Oscar for supporting actress for the movie. But... Uh, and so she has a really <laughs> funny grudge against Winona Ryder saying like, if Winona Ryder had just gone as a lead actress, which she is, then I would have gotten the nomination, you know, <laughs> and it's very funny. So I will, I, I might link to that in the show description and I rec do recommend that people look that up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, she's really fun in the movie. What do we think about Daniel Day-Lewis in this one? It, it seems like to me, Daniel Day-Lewis, for the most part, has either sort of crazy person like big big mm -hmm. performance or like kind of mawkish and, sh and mousy and kind of that it's sort of one way and it's definitely this is more restrained sort of yeah restrained restrained yeah. a, a good word um yeah it makes me think of well you know you do know Rachel that I love Phantom Thread and I think this mm -hmm. movie uh, I think Phantom Thread has a bit of influence of this movie definitely yeah. in like some of the lavish that. style um, and the kind of manners of the movie. And I think Day-Lewis in that plays a character who's much more at home with those mannerisms. And here he's a little bit more in the 
romantic mode, which I really, I, I do really like. I, I mean, I love him as an actor and I think it does work. And I actually think that sometimes his performances like this are underappreciated. You know, he got nominated this year, but not for Age of Innocence for In the Name of the Father, which is a, a, a bit more of a, like a masculine, uh, high energy performance, I would say. Um, what do you yeah. think, Jen? I love Daniel Day-Lewis. I think he's remarkable. Watching these, it makes me uh, miss him as an actor. He's kind of in Bartleby the Scrivener mode. Like, I would prefer not Mm. to. He'd rather, (laughs) you know, do carpentry and stuff like that. And that's cool. It's his right. I like him in all modes. There Will Be Blood is probably my favorite performance he ever did. But the swoony romantic stuff is just, I mean, he is the son of a poet and he's very dreamy and he loves the romantic sensibility. Uh, Unbearable lightness of being was kind of in this era. And one mm-hmm. that I really love that if Rachel hasn't seen, she needs to write down because I think she would enjoy it. It's a little violent, but it's so romantic and gorgeous is the last of the Mohicans. Have you seen that? Mm. I have seen that. Yeah. That's oh, okay. A good one. I yeah. love him in that. So I really enjoy him, uh, you know, playing the romantic hero, you know, mm-hmm. playing anything basically. But yeah, I thought he was very good. Uh, I will say the one person who was kind of the where's Waldo initially when I went in was Michelle Pfeiffer. I wasn't quite mm. sure if she was the right person for the role. And she was maybe the thing holding me back the first time I watched it. But then Mm -hmm. the more I saw it, the more I was realizing uh, what she's doing intellectually with her performance and when she reveals certain things and when she doesn't. And I came, you know, full circle. I turned around on her. I think she's great. Uh I I agree. I think everyone is really good in the movie. I also think the movie is really great uh casting choices i think the casting is very very particular of the three leads because i think scorsese is playing a little bit with what we expect from them you know daniel day lewis coming off last of the mohicans he's such a gorgeous man a leading actor a a Mm -hmm. strong you know great actor already in the 90s and to put him in this role that you expect him to be the hero and then to see him so outmatched by the people <laughs> yes. around him is really works. You know, it's a big payoff and it makes it even more devastating. We don't know writer, like we said before, playing this, like, you know, playing into his her image of like America's younger or like, you know, the the older sister of the family. And, you know, we all love her, Edward Scissorhands yeah. and all of that. And then Michelle Pfeiffer, I think, brings... Uh, I agree with you that that her performance seems a little bit out of place, uh, especially the first time around. And I yep. think that's a little bit on purpose because she is the character who's out of place the most. You know, she comes from Europe. She exactly. doesn't fit into this society from the beginning. And she feels very uncomfortable in it. And she feels like she stands out in a way that I think works. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought she was really, really good in in the film. I All the performances were excellent. Mm-hmm. So should we maybe get into our questions yeah, uh, about it. this movie? The first one is, what makes this a Criterion film? And I think we've, you know, talked about some of the elements, but why don't we talk a little more about them? <laughs> Jen, what do you think? What makes this a Criterion film? I think the pedigree, it is uh, Scorsese, who's like Mr. New York, doing uh, a movie that is so New York uh, in an adaptation mm-hmm. about or of the Edith Wharton novel. So I think that is part of it. Also just the people working on this thing. 
Michael Ballhouse's cinematography is just stunning. I mean, you see some of the flourishes that came from, I believe it was Black Narcissus and Rear Window when they would do those dissolves into uh, pure color, yellow mm, and red. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see some of the impressionist use of that. I think it's just so ornate and opulent. I also enjoy the musical uh, choices that kind of play throughout. Uh, Pathetique Mm -hmm. by Beethoven is my favorite sonata of his, and that kind of is underscored throughout. I think it's in the scene where she crosses across the room. I love that when she leaves one man and walks across the room to talk to Daniel Day-Lewis, which was so taboo. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when you leave a a guy at a party, the joke is to talk to somebody better, but it's really just because she's attracted to him. And that kind of plays underneath, I think, it's the whole package. It's Scorsese, mm-hmm. you know, post uh, masterpiece of Raging Bull, post several masterpieces, really. So that fits right in with Criterion. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. And I also that scene that you mentioned is such a great scene of something that we hadn't really talked about that much of how the voiceover narration in the movie really pays yeah. off. Um in a sense, because that's something that I wouldn't have picked up on if it hadn't been put into narration. So I think this is one of those movies in which the narration actually is essential to it working because mm. the, the world is so... Yeah. Joan Woodward, who does a great job reading the narration. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's such an obtuse world that you really do need a little bit of a holding mm-hmm. hands to make any sense of it. Um, yeah, and I also think that if I were putting the collection together... I'd want to try to have as many sort of genres represented and and there's not that many period pieces in the collection and there's not that many romances, even if it's a sort of a tragic romance, there's, there's not that many in the collection. So I think it kind of, it, it checks a lot of boxes in that, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And I think it also feels so to me, it, it is always very exciting to see a movie by a director who is known for one thing doing something mm-hmm. different yeah. and to see the ways in which he can do something different and, and still, and the ways in which that connects with his other work, you know, it, it really puts the kind of like the auteur theory to like, it's almost like a, a great example of that, of that, you know, like a director will bring his personality and his, uh, the themes that speak to him or her yep. to whatever movie they're, they're doing. And I think this really proves that in a very beautiful way. Agreed. All right. So speaking of that, uh, of a tours and, you know, theories, what do we think this ranks in the pretentiousness scale where we rank a movie from zero to 10 uh, as far as how pretentious it is? Um, Rachel, what do you think about this? Well, I think there are people that would put a period piece as just inherently pretentious Mm -hmm. uh, to a certain degree, you know, the rules and the stuffiness and everything. Uh, But uh, also it is, I think, leisurely paced, I would say. And so I think maybe that adds a little bit. I give it a seven. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Jen? That's hard um, because pretentious sort of is so subjective, but I agree with Rachel's points. I think those were really good ones. So I was going to say maybe five to seven, but yeah, right in there. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with you, uh, both of you as well. 
um, I think there is something about making a movie that is, um, you know, I think there is a reason why both you and I, Jen, it took us a couple of watches to really fully warm up to it. I think it's mm -hmm. also telling that at the time it came out, it wasn't celebrated like some of other Martin Scorsese movies. True. You know, it got some Oscar nominations, but not Best Picture or Director or anything like that. Um, so I think there is something to that, that it's a movie that is a little bit difficult to understand the first time around. There's so much that is unsaid. There's so much going on. There's You have to really learn how to see it. And I think that is a little bit of a pretentious uh, ideal there behind that of like, the, the movie is not all on the surface. In fact, it's the opposite of that, like we were saying. The surface is very beautiful, but everything that's meaty about it is underneath. And True. that's, um, you know, and that makes it doesn't make it for the easiest watch. So I think a seven is also where I would land, probably. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, now's the time for the remakes. Oh, I mean, in this case, it wouldn't really be a remake. It would just be a, another adaptation of the book. But I feel like this would make a great, uh, like, BBC miniseries. Ooh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. that. Yeah, it'd give us a little bit more time to breathe. Uh, be, I don't know, just I think it would be interesting to, to dive a little bit more into this world. And I guess Dreamcast. Uh, I, I thought mm -hmm. of Timothy Chalamet. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then uh, for Archer and then I thought of uh, Millie Bobby Brown for uh, May and then the Baroness I thought of uh, Dakota Johnson Ooh. oh interesting uh, I feel I like, like she's her. kind of Michelle Pfeiffer-ish a little sure. bit yeah and she also feels kind of modern, so it would it would have a similar effect um, in a period piece, I think. Um, I can't think of a period piece that she's been in, right? Am I forgetting something? Obviously? Well, she is this year. She's going to be in uh, in a new adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion, which I'm so excited about. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so. I do love Dakota Johnson, so I, I, I'll I be look, checking that out. Yeah. Um, Henry Golding is in it. Oh, oh, that's, that's also enticing. <laughs> yeah. We're on the same page today. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, uh, Jen, about Remake? Oh, that's hard. I, I don't know about casting, but I was thinking about it. I would love to see an inverted by gender. So I would oh. really be fascinated by a woman in the Newland Archer role, maybe. <laughs> Though I guess technically people could argue, Jen, that's Portrait of a Lady. But, <laughs> but <laughs> sticking with this, I think it would be kind of cool to see a woman caught between these two men. It is hard to imagine. Though, you know, there is the idea of wanting to, you know, be maybe for the kids, stay with the man A instead of man B. You could do that argument. Mm. Or you could make her a bachelorette and put her in God, like even a Western if you wanted. I've been watching a lot of those this month for a couple of things I'm working on. So you could really take this in a different direction. Yeah. I think the hard part about gender swapping this story is that it's, it's just socially more acceptable yeah. for a woman to be with an older man than for a man to be with an older woman. Mm -hmm. you just 
still even to this day it's just not mm. as that's true uh, not as um expected yep yeah and everything is so specific about this world and the rules you know that um but i think that's what makes it I think Western is an interesting idea because the rules of of the West are so mm-hmm. different. Yep. But, you know, every society yeah. has those things, especially in the 19th century of like so, such rigidity about so many what we expect people to to um, how we how rather we expect people to behave. I almost wish. I was wondering if, like, if you could do it in the present day somehow and make it work. I'm not oh, sure. I love that. I'm not sure what the right place to set it would be, but actually that kind of works. Like maybe a, a small town in America, like its own version of of these rules, but you know, in a way that um, that it's it's completely different uh, style. You know, so but I would love to see a, a a movie set in a small town that is like as lavish as this one. You know, that tries to make like a regular suburban working class house look like a look like a palace in the 1870s, you know, um, and just like has that lushness of camera. And, and so th- th- maybe that's what I would pitch for a remake. <laughs> I don't know cool. if it would work, <laughs> but it would be an interesting experiment perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hollywood give us a call basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's basically what we say every episode. After yeah. remake. BBC hire Rachel. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for next our next episode, I decided to go with a film by uh, the director of Drive My Car, which is you know nominated for Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher the name. You can probably help me with this, Jen. But Raisuke Hamaguchi, is that right? I think Raisuke Hamaguchi, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, we're we're going to talk about Asako One and Two. I have never seen it, but it's a love story. It sounds like charming. And I'm no. just curious to kind of learn more about him and his filmmaking. I, I, I guess I didn't love Drive My Car as much as other people seem to. I admired it. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I liked things about it. Uh, but I he definitely was, as I was watching him, like, I really want to learn more about the director and watch mm-hmm. more of his films. Yeah, I think that'll be great. We can talk about it by the time that episode comes out. By the time we record it, we'll, the Oscars will probably have happened already. Mm-hmm. So we'll know um, how it goes for Hamaguchi and, on his big night, potential big night, I guess. Um, and yeah, I've heard a lot about Asako 1 and 2 and his other movies. Um, it's one of the shorter ones that he's made. So that's a plus for Criterion Project scheduling. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Can't wait yes. to listen to you guys. Yeah. All right, so that's it for the Criterion Project this week. Um, thanks everybody for listening. If you feel so inclined and want to give us a, you know, a good review and a rating on iTunes, that would really help us, and we would very much appreciate it. Thanks again, Jen, for being here. Do you want to tell the listeners where they can find you and more of your work? Remind them of that. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Film Intuition. Filmintuition.com is also my website and my podcast is Watch with Jen. And thanks so much for having me, you guys. This is a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it was great. We love talking about movies. Um, yeah, you can also follow Criterion Project on Twitter at Criterion Pod, and you can follow Rachel Wagner on Twitter at <laughs> You can follow me at Rachel's Reviews, all of our social media. 
and uh, on iTunes and on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. So check all of that out. And also make sure you check out the Homeworkies podcast. Like I said, we have that fun episode coming up about adventure romance. And we have weekly interviews. We just have a ton of fun over there. So take a look. Fantastic. You can follow me on Twitter at CocoHitsNY. And the day that this episode drops will be two days before the premiere of the first episode, the first two episodes, actually, of season two of my web series, Wormholes, a sci-fi comedy about two roommates in an apartment with an interdimensional wormhole in the closet. I've talked about it a lot in this podcast, but we are very excited about the second season. Um, it was very fun to make. We're very excited about it. We went kind of ambitious. So I hope everybody tunes in and enjoys it. Yeah, y'all should definitely check it out. And thanks again, Jen. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you all uh, next time on Criterion Project. Bye, everyone.